Well, my dear listeners, I am going to get really autobiographical today. Today, I'm going to tell you a lot about me, about the mistakes I've made, how those mistakes have brought me to this episode of Interior Integration for Catholics. We're going to get into some of my history and why I think the way that I do, how that's come from my experiences. Now, I have parts that really don't like me talking about myself. And you'll notice there's usually not much autobiographical material in previous episodes. I also, it's kind of weird. It, it, like I'm talking about myself in my studio, which is just my office. I'm not being interviewed by a host. So there's this competent part of me that thinks, you know, it's a little weird to be sharing some of these details of my life, my struggles, my mistakes, not knowing really who is listening because I haven't met most of you. Most of you who listen to this podcast, I haven't met you. And so that's a little weird too. So I've checked in with my different parts. They're good with it. At least I have grudging acceptance from all of my parts to kind of go about this, to go about this episode in this way. I am Clinical psychologist Peter Malinowski, I am here with you to be your host and guide. This podcast is called Interior Integration for Catholics, and it is part of our online outreach, Souls and Hearts, at soulsandhearts.com. This podcast is all about shoring up your natural foundation for the Catholic spiritual life. It's all about overcoming the psychological obstacles to being loved and to loving God and neighbor and yourself. And we're going to get into that much more deeply now in this next series of episodes. We've wrapped up the sexuality stuff. We're now moving on to a brief series of episodes that takes the best insights of internal family systems approaches to understanding the human person on a natural level and reconciling those insights with the eternal truths of the Catholic faith. So this is episode 71. It's released on June 7th. 2021, and it's entitled, A New and Better Way of Understanding Myself and Others. That's what this is all about. We really need to know ourselves, and we really need to know others if we're going to love ourselves, and if we're going to love others in this ordered way. It's all about the two great commandments. It's all about loving God and loving our neighbor. And loving our neighbor as ourself, which means we have to love ourselves, it means that we have a relationship with ourselves. So we're going to dive into that in the next few episodes. So many people are so confused about themselves. So many people do not understand themselves very well. This impacts their capacity to love themselves, and it also impacts their capacity to love their neighbor and it also impacts their capacity to love God. So that's what this is all oriented toward. It's all oriented toward the two great commandments. All right, so let's go back in time. Let's rewind this and go back to 1987. Now, in 1987, I graduated from high school, and I would have been considered, quote, highly successful, end quote, by the world standards as a child and, and an adolescent. 4.0 GPA in high school. I was a valedictorian. I had varsity letters and track and cross country. I acted in high school musicals and plays. I excelled in competitive solo acting. I, I was on the chess team. I was active in student government. I was a pretty good shot on the local community pistol team. I had a lot going for me, and I continued that success when I went to Northwestern University, wound up graduating with honors, traveling the world. I lived in Seville and studied at the Universidad de Sevilla for a year. I romped around Mexico for a summer, living large, right? But in 1991, I was brought to my knees, figuratively and literally. 22 years old, I had just left a very high-demand Catholic group with a strong sense of having been manipulated and used and exploited. It was a really bad vocational experience, and I was really struggling to figure out what happened to me. 
Why was I having so many contradictory thoughts and feelings about my experience in that group? What was going on? How, I must have made a mistake either in joining that group in the first place or in leaving it, right? There was this existential crisis that had been going on because a leader in that group had told me that the founder once said that he wouldn't give a nickel for the soul of any son of his who abandoned his vocation and the group, right? So for the true believer, there was no way out of that group. So I was messed up. I was struggling. And that's a really common reason for why people get into the field of psychology. I wanted to understand my experience. I wanted to sort through what had happened in my life. I wanted to work through this trauma. And the models I had when I was 22 just simply weren't sufficient. I wasn't satisfied with the superficial reasons for why I felt in the contradictory ways that I felt, why I thought in the contradictory ways that I thought, and why I acted in contradictory ways, right? Brings up St. Paul in Romans 7.15. Why is it that I do that which I don't want to do? right? Those kinds of questions were very, very large for me. So in 1993, after taking some psychology classes, I began a PhD program in clinical psychology at Ohio University. I really wanted to grip on to the best that psychology had to offer in terms of helping people like myself to resolve these conflicts that had come up. And I, and I eventually was drawn to understanding personality. I wanted to understand at depth what was going on in the human psyche. Originally, I was trained in a variety of modalities, cognitive behavioral therapy. I also got into health and rehabilitation psychology when I was at Ohio University as a graduate student. I found these insufficient because they didn't address the deepest questions that I wanted to get to. They didn't address the unconscious. So in the year 2000, I was at a crossroads in my life. I was about to finish my PhD, was very much also struggling to find a way to ground psychology in a Catholic worldview that was so important to me. It had to be reconciled with what we knew to be true by divine revelation. Very few resources were available at the time. Most of those were very limited. And I was considering leaving the field of psychology altogether because I was unconvinced that it really had the power to bring about fundamental healing. I was thinking, I can be an applied statistician or I could retreat into behavioral medicine. But a voice kept saying, there is a way. Seek it. So I trusted that voice. I went deeper into my prayer life. And by God's grace, I found a path. That was through phenomenology, particularly the phenomenology of Dietrich von Hildebrand, and also Carmelite spirituality, which was so relational and that was so important to me at the time, and it still is. I'm still very heavily influenced by Carmelite spirituality. St. Teresa of Avila, St. John of the Cross, St. Teresa of Lisieux. Also, I was being supervised at the time by a Protestant psychoanalyst. And that was also really helpful because it got me in touch with the unconscious. It really helped me to understand what was going on in the unconscious and how to begin to understand in a much more nuanced way, personality, what made people tick? How can we understand that? And so obviously there's been models that go back attempting to understand this 2,500 years. Maybe the oldest theory of personality is in the cosmological writings of the Greek philosopher and physiologist Empedocles. And he had a huge impact on Hippocrates when Hippocrates was putting together his, his understanding of medicine that had a huge impact on Western medicinal thinking for, for centuries. Most of us know the, the four types of temperaments, the sanguine, the choleric, the phlegmatic, and the melancholic. Those are ways of trying to understand how we tick. And I went on to become a real expert in personality assessment, a real expert in psychological assessment. I did that for 15 years, constantly trying to refine how do we understand not just what the person's experience is in conscious awareness, but how do we get to the level of the unconscious? How do we answer that question that St. Paul asked? Why is it that I do that which I don't want to do? So I dived deeply into this. 
And what I realized after 20 years of learning about this is that that's also less than what it could be. After 20 years of searching, I found something that I think is so much better, so much better. That is models of the human person that involve both a unity of the person and a multiplicity of the person. So what was happening as I was doing these psychological evaluations and describing people's personalities is that I was coming up with very complex ways of describing personality. I would say, okay, this person has a hysterical core with an obsessive compulsive overlay and some really dependent defenses. You know, there's all kinds of ways that I would summarize the functioning of the person. And they were helpful. I mean, I don't consider that to be a pure mistake. It was just so much less than it could be, as I found out later. And so having done that for so long, I became more and more convinced that there wasn't such a thing as a unified, stable personality. Not if you really got to know the person, not if you really got below the surface. Oh, sure, there were habitual ways of operating that were pretty consistent and stable over time. But even in the diagnostic manuals, the best at diagnostic manuals, personalities, which are supposed to be relatively stable explanations of psychological characteristics. I mean, that's the real point of having a personality, that there's characteristic patterns of thoughts and feelings and behaviors that are predictable and that separate one person from others. But when you actually get at the level of depth that I wanted to work at, if you didn't want to just stay in the 10% of the psyche that's conscious, but you wanted to understand more than that, the 90% that wasn't, you're going to see so much more going on because of repression and suppression and other kinds of defenses that would drive things into the unconscious and would not be available readily. So I found myself at this crossroads in the year 2017, 2018, right about then. And that was, how do I handle working with clients that were really traumatized and whose internal systems were so fractured? The first time I did psychological testing on a client diagnosable with dissociative identity disorder, what we used to call multiple personality disorder, who was switching during the assessment, it looked like the test had been taken by four or five different people. There was no way to reconcile the findings because there was just so such radically different response styles depending on which of her parts or what we might call in DSM terms, identities happened to be in front at the time she was taking that particular test. I also was really struggling because I was starting to see more of this dissociation, more of this lack of integration in more and more clients as I worked with more and more uh, traumatized individuals. And the ordinary models of personality just weren't working anymore. They just didn't have the explanatory power that I was looking for. And so I said, all right, I'm really going to get into this whole parts thing. And I suspected that there probably was nothing special about DID, about dissociative identity disorder. It probably represented an extreme on a continuum. And lo and behold, there were a minority of theorists and, cl- and clinicians that that were working in that way. I had been trained in EMDR, among other modalities and there were theorists that were working with parts and I was like oh this is exactly what I need to be doing especially with my clients who were really fragmented inside and what I realized was that there was one model that really appealed to me above all the other models of parts there's a number of parts models out there that are helpful in a variety of ways there is Jack and Helen Watkins ego state models that have been sort of amplified by Sandra Paulson in her EMDR work. There is DNMS, Developmental Needs Meeting Strategies. There is the Structural Theory of Dissociation. There's all kinds of models that include parts, but Internal Family Systems by Richard Schwartz really stood out because it emphasized both the unity of the person and the multiplicity of the person. So, I dove into that, got a lot of training in that very quickly, and it was incredibly eye-opening, not just professionally in working with my clients, but in my own personal life. I got answers 
to things that had been bothering me and that I had been questioning for decades. And that, to me, is the coin of the realm. If it changes me, if it really has an impact in my life, if it reveals why I have the conflicts and why I make the mistakes that I do over and over and over again, why is it that I binge watch YouTube videos, especially videos of plane crashes, for example, or why is it that I'm so drawn to chocolate when I'm having conflict with my family members? These kinds of things that never made sense to me, even with the work that I had done psychodynamically and in, in, in attempting to work with my own internal conflicts and so forth, this really brought it to life. So what I want to do for you in the next few episodes is to lay out a basic understanding of internal family systems. That's what we're going to do today. In the next episode, episode 72, we're going to take a look at it through a Catholic lens. We're going to ground it in a Catholic anthropology because, again, that's so important. And one of the beautiful things about internal family systems is that it's open to spiritual realities. It is connects in a variety of different ways with of understanding the spiritual world and in fact has ways of not only accepting that spirituality realities exist but accounting for them within its model which is really remarkable right so we're going to do a review of the ifs model of a person and basically ifs says that the person is the sum of three things, the self, the parts, and the body. The self is the core of the person. It's the center of the person. This is who we sense ourselves to be in our best moments, when our self is free, when we're unblended with any of our parts, and we'll talk about that in a minute. It's when we have the sense of being calm and curious and compassionate, when we have this confidence and courage and clarity and connection within ourselves and with the world, when there's this creativity and kindness. Those are the eight C's and the K that are the qualities of the self, calm, curiosity, compassion, confidence, courage, clarity, connectedness, creativity, and kindness. The self is made to govern the system, like the conductor leading the musicians in an orchestra or the captain leading and governing all the sailors on the ship. The self is the one, the entity within, that has that responsibility. Now, the parts are these separate, independently operating personalities within each of us. So basically, you can consider a part like a little personality. In other words, Dick Schwartz argues that we all have multiple personalities because we all have parts. Each of these parts has its unique prominent needs, its role in our lives, its own emotions. It's got its own related body sensations, its own guiding beliefs and assumptions. It's got its typical thoughts, its intentions, its desires, its attitudes, its impulses, its interpersonal style, and it's got a worldview. And each part also happens to have an image of God and its own approach to sexuality. I love how Robert Falconer calls parts insiders. These are the, the ones inside of us, the musicians in the orchestra. These parts also have different ways of attaching, different ways of connecting with other people. They have different love languages. And here's the thing. Because of trauma, because of attachment injuries, because of relational wounds, parts get forced into extreme roles. They wind up doing what we don't want to do. So many parts are hidden because they consider themselves or are considered by other parts to be unacceptable, unlovable, unworthy, dangerous, harmful, inappropriate, or whatever. Right? So they're banished or exiled from the system, from being present within ourselves. Remember the title of this podcast is Interior Integration for Catholics. What I think we suffer from is this tremendous fragmentation. We underestimate the impact of original sin, the sins of others, our own personal sins on the integration of our psyches. There has been this devastating, catastrophic impact 
on our psyches. Just like there was a devastating catastrophic impact on the body in the Garden of Eden, right? Death came in, physical illness, physical labor, pain in childbirth, all kinds of really important things happened. All kinds of major catastrophic changes to the body. We also have that within the psyche. And the effect of it is to fragment us. It's to lead us to be unintegrated. So our job in the natural realm is to build this order, this unity, this collaboration, this harmony among parts. That's really what the work in the natural realm is about. And because grace perfects nature, St. Thomas Aquinas tells us, we need this strong natural foundation for our spiritual life. If we are fragmented, if we are having these integration issues, it's going to be difficult for us to to love other people. It's going to be difficult to love ourselves because we don't even know ourselves in so many different ways, right? So that's what I want to offer you. That's what motivates me to do this podcast. That's what's motivated me to start the Resilient Catholics community and the Interior Therapist community to be able to bring this to people. I want to, this is really what my mission is. This is what floats my boat. This is what I'm passionate about. So let's go back to parts. Parts are in three roles, generally. The first are the exiles. These exiled parts have been exploited, rejected, or abandoned in external relationship. They carry the burden of the wounds, of the relational traumas, the attachment injuries. They hold the pain, the loss, the suffering, the anger, the sorrow. And these parts have been isolated from conscious awareness so that the person doesn't become overwhelmed by the intensity of the experiences. These parts desperately want to be seen and known. They want to be safe. They want to be secure. They want to be comforted. They want to be soothed. They want to be cared for. They want to be included. But because of the intensity of the experience and because other parts are trying to find a way for you to survive, they, those parts that carry that intensity get banished. Also, they're banished because they can harm external relationships. They can lead us to... To, into difficulties in our external relationships, or they can lead us to harm ourselves in various ways. And so other parts, protector parts, leap in and they really work hard to make sure that the parts that carry these burdens of pain and loss and grief and shame and rage are not allowed a place at the table. They're banished into the unconscious, but you know what? They still have an incredibly strong effect. There's no way to completely hermetically seal these parts off so that they don't impact us. And a lot of the conflict that people experience, I would argue most of it, is between parts within a system locked in combat around what direction they want the person to go, what goods they want the person to have. Manager parts, okay, These are proactive protector parts. They work strategically with forethought and planning to keep control of situations, and they work hard to minimize the likelihood of you being hurt. They work really hard to keep you safe, and they get involved with all kinds of controlling and striving and planning and caretaking and judging. They can be really pessimistic. They can be self-critical. They can be very demanding, and they proactively work hard to keep these exiled parts from bringing their baggage into conscious awareness. But sometimes the managers can't do it on their own. And exiled parts break through with rage or shame or depression that is so intense that it's disabling, crippling. And then firefighter parts, that's the third group of parts, firefighter parts leap in And they act in this really reactive way. So when the exiled parts break through and they threaten to take us over, the firefighters leap in and they take over the system. Like the parts in Inside Out, you know, when they took over the control panel and they began to run everything, the firefighters do that. 
in it's an emergency situation. It's a crisis. It's like a fire raging in the house and there's no concern for niceties, no concern for propriety, no concern for little details like that. Firefighters, they take the bold, drastic action to stifle, numb, or distract from the intensity of the exile's experience. Anything to get us away from that grief or that rage or that shame or whatever it is that the exile is bringing to us because it's desperate to have us know what its experience is in order in the hope that somehow it could be resolved. So firefighter parts, because they're dealing with this existential crisis, they don't have any concern for consequences and they can use alcohol or binge eat or shopping or sleeping or dieting or excessive hours at work, workaholism, excessive exercise that can be harmful to our bodies, even self-harm like cutting or burning oneself, even suicide. That's an example of a firefighter desperately seeking relief from the intensity of what an exile is bringing to the, to the table, what an exile is bringing to conscious awareness. Right? So the intense neediness, the grief, the rage brings these emergency actions Firefighters go to battle stations. There's all kinds of arming of torpedoes, no concern for consequences. And when parts do that, whether it's a manager taking over the control panel or whether it's a firefighter taking over the control panel or whether it's an exile taking over the control panel, we call that blending, right? When a part is in charge, when a part is driving the bus in IFS, we call that blending. And the goal is not for a part to drive the bus. The parts don't have the capacity to lead our systems well. That is reserved for the self, right? So what we're seeking in IFS terms is that we be self-governed or that we be self-possessed, we might say. In other words, that this self that has these qualities of calm and curiosity and compassion and confidence and courage and clarity and connectedness and creativity and kindness, this self that has the innate capacity to lead well, that that self shine through, that it not be suppressed, that it not be driven away by a part who is taking over the driver's seat within the person. And how do we get there? That's the brilliance of IFS, in my opinion, is that it has found a way, Richard Schwartz and his colleagues have found a way to really bring about recollection on a natural level. And this goes way beyond mindfulness. Mindfulness has a lot to do with sort of passive observation of what's going on inside and acceptance of what you find there and so forth. IFS goes way beyond that to much of a more of a natural recollection where the self takes an active role. It's an active governing leader within, not a passive observer. Never been all that impressed with the mindfulness business, to tell you the truth. I just don't think it goes far enough. IFS, I think, has a better, a much better approach here because of the agency within the person to uh, make these internal changes. All right, so I was trying to think about, okay, can I come up with an example? Can I create a character and I lay out all the different parts of that person and how they would interact? And you know what? That's really hard to do in a, in a way that is plausible, right? To get that level of complexity. I've done it before, like in episode 61, uh, so a little bit in episode 60. There have been other times where I've laid out different kinds of ways that parts have interacted in relationship or within a person. But then it came to me in mass this morning. It was like, why don't you describe your own parts to your people, Dr. Peter? And I was like, oh boy, oh boy, really? I'm going to describe my own parts? And I thought, man, that would be a lot easier than trying to make up another character. So I checked it out with my parts. I have 10 parts that I'm aware of. I've discovered them over the last several years. And like all my parts were okay with it. Some of them, a little bit of grudging acceptance, right? Rather than uh, enthusiasm. Some of them had enthusiasm about the idea of like being known by you, my audience. But I thought, yeah, let's go ahead and just review my system in order to give you a flavor for how this actually works in a real human being. 
actually am not just a podcast personality. I am actually a real human being. And so let's talk about my exiles. All right. So I have, as far as I know, four exiles, or I would consider them more former exiles now because they're much more integrated into my system than they used to be. But one was my angry part. This was a part that held a lot of intense anger, a lot of rage, very commonly would break through because I was more of a, if you wanted to think of me as a, in terms of temperaments, much more of a cleric than uh, anything else. And so driven a lot by this part that carried a lot of rage about injustices that it perceived having, and it protected that rage also protected against deeper levels of shame and sadness. So this feisty part of me, which is now what we go by, I no longer call it my angry part, I call it my feisty part. This part, very choleric, primary emotion is anger, body sensations, I feel this part in my jaw um, when I have like a clenched mouth in part to, to, uh, to, to keep me from saying things that I might want to say. Uh, it tends to really focus on the issues of justice and injustice. Its intentions are to like have me acknowledge when there's been harm. It also gets angry on other people's behalf. This is a part that rises up when I perceive injustice being inflicted on other people. Its desires are strongly for justice and it's very impulsive. It will act. It's very impulsive. This really connects me to St. Peter with some of his impulsivity interpersonally, it's much more concerned about matters of right and wrong than it is about relationships. And this part also has had a sense historically of being pretty alienated and distant from God, that God sort of set the world in motion and has gone away. And I'm out in a vineyard trying to make it profitable, but uh, no help from God really is not that connected. Kind of resonates with those scriptures about how God gave you know one or five or ten talents and then went away on a long journey, and we're supposed to make it happen without without any guidance from God. That part is very much like that. So that's my feisty part. My adventurer part. This is the one that holds fear, and I've been disconnected from fear for a lot of my life. This. It was dangerous for me in a lot of situations to feel fear. So I had a very strong disconnect between the part of me that held fear, this adventurer part. And that was very adaptive because it allowed me to take on stray dogs and to um, manhandle attorneys in court cases who were trying to step outside of bounds and push me around. When I was not in touch with the fear, I was fearless. And so I could do things that that seemed really adaptive, but it's really harmful to be disconnected from your fear because it doesn't allow you very much to connect with fear in other people. Anything you reject in yourself, you're going to reject in other people because you don't want it activating. Your parts don't want it activating that feared thing within you, right? So that's another part of me is that that adventurer part. And now it's got a much different role in my system. It, it really takes us on adventures and it has the sense of like awe and wonder and the sense of, of adventure, of being willing to take risks. It's kind of paradoxical. It's a very different role than what it had before. It still holds fear for me and it will do that in situations when it is helpful for me to be somewhat disconnected from my fear, emergency situations and so forth. But I'm much in much better connection with that part. Then I have a lover part. This lover part is so, so sanguine, right? It very much wants relationships. It very much wants deep emotional connections with other people. And that part had also been very disconnected because of the way that it could get me hurt. It could get me hurt in romantic relationships. It could get me hurt in other relationships. And so that lover part, it really believes in love. It really believes in emotional connection. It really desires that. That's what it's focused on. And then I have a part that I call melancholio. And melancholio is a part that held sadness. And again, when I grew up and in high school and in college, to be sad was to be weak. There was a very strong connection between sadness and weakness. And so because I had that deeply ingrained in me, my melancholio part was very much exiled as well. But it also then led me not to be able to empathize with people. It compromised my capacity to be compassionate. And so very much like uh, the sadness part in the movie Inside Out, 
the reconciliation with that part brought to me so much greater capacity for empathy, for attunement with other people. So those are my four former XLs, the feisty one, the adventurer who holds fear, the lover part, and melancholio. My managers, I have a primary manager, and this is very common, right? One of the reasons why there can be what I would argue is an illusion of personality is that oftentimes one part drives the bus most of the time. And for me, that was my competent part. That was my manager that was in front and driving the bus almost always. This part was really good at getting things done, very competent at managing tasks and workflows and things like that very focused on achieving because it believed that if we worked hard enough and if we got enough done, then God would love me. That's, that's, that was its driving idea. It had sort of this distant God, a God that was very demanding, a God that really needed a lot of sacrifices, and then you would be accepted, right? So it was really a Pelagian idea that that part had. And that also went along with my good boy part. Now, my good boy part is a really moral part of me that wants to make sure that everything is Catholic. It can be a really judgmental part, can get a little church lady. Those of you that are old enough to remember Saturday Night Live, church get a little church lady, both with myself and with others. And while that part and all of these parts had good intentions, all parts have good intentions for us, that part alienated people because of its critical judging actions, right? The beliefs that it held. And while it was trying to help in a lot of cases, it really did cause harm in some of my relationships. Then I had, a, then I have a, what I, a part that I call the evaluator. And this is formerly my critic part. Now, it is a really common thing for people to have an, at least one internal critic and this part was mine. This part was constantly evaluating what I did, right? It was locked into conflict with my competent part who was really tired of it because it's like, oh man, it's not good enough, right? I've got to pursue perfection. The uh, gospel verse of be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect resounded in my critic's ears all the time. That's what was driving it. And Again, it was driven by fear, a fear that I would not be good enough, that I would not be acceptable to God, fear that I wouldn't make it to heaven, fear that I wasn't going to earn God's favor. You can see within this that these, this was happening in years and decades when I really didn't have much of a personal relationship with God or an experience of being in an intimate, personal, close relationship with our Father. And so now I call that critic the evaluator. He's got a new role in my system, not so critical, but does still like to have that role of evaluating things, but with an acknowledgement and a humility of we don't really know. Former exiles, the feisty one, adventurer, my lover part, and melancholio. And then three managers, competent part, good boy part, and evaluator. And those three really did do a lot of work to suppress my exile parts. And then when those failed, my, my, my firefighters would come up. And so the first one is formerly what I formerly called the intimidator. I have a part that can be really intimidating, that really could play the alpha male and could stare down almost anybody, to be honest with you, really developed in, through some interpersonal conflicts that I've had. And that part would come out when I felt threatened, when I felt fear. It was very much about suppressing fear, very much about suppressing my adventurer part that held fear. Because if I was large, if I was big, if I was in command, if I was intimidating, if I was making other people afraid, then that meant I wasn't afraid. And that allowed me to say, ah, the fear is in the other person. It's not in me. And so intimidation was something that I became good at. And when you are six foot two and over 200 pounds, that's helpful in when you want to intimidate people. Now, I didn't go around, you know, doing this overtly. I don't want to give you the impression, you know, that I was like shoving people out of line at bus stops and stuff like that. But, um, but it really did impact the way that uh, I connected because there were times where 
you know, frankly, people didn't feel safe because if that intimidator part came out, it was, it specialized in, in inducing fear in other people. Now that part is my guardian part and still has a self-protective way of, of, of working in my system, but it's much more toned down. You know, that part is really gripping onto the idea that yes, suffering is going to happen and that there's a redemptive value to it. And that vulnerability is not as dangerous as it seems, that there are ways to be uh, safe and secure, even when one is hurting. Right? That's a major sort of understanding that that guardian part had to come to. Another firefighter for me was the rebel. And this was a part that would just lash out, especially against authority figures. I've got this part is the part that carries my authority issues. Authority issues in secular government, authority issues in the church, authority issues in my family, authority issues across the board, including with God. This part really had issues with God. And coupled with my feisty one, you know, who also had a lot of anger at God, these two could really get wound up around not understanding God. And a lot of work with this part. Again, this part warded off especially sadness, but also fear. Um, this part joined with rage, though, right? So you can see the complexity of the nature of the relationships here. This part would run, my challenger part and my guardian part would certainly run with my feisty part, right? Those, those would sort of team up and align and, you know, and that could lead me into impulsive outbursts of temper and things like that, a very cleric type of style. And then my last firefighter part, my creative part, this is a part that was really great with humor, very distracting, could use humor to distract, could use all kinds of witticisms, other things to keep me uh, guarded against especially sadness. This part could also be pretty manic, high levels of energy to ward off a sense of grief and loss. So it really defended against my melancholia part. Those, and so the, those are the 10 parts, at least as I know them. Right? I suspect that there may be another part because there's some, I do have some issues around like not having access to the shame that I think is all there. I can't quite tell. Uh, about that. Um, but, you know, it's an ongoing process. We'll continue to, I'll continue to work and see. So you can see that each of these parts has a personality style. For example, my competent part is kind of obsessive. And my lover part is very, is quite hysterical in terms of the, the, the personality structure. Each part has its characteristic emotions, characteristic body sensations. I mentioned to you that my that my feisty part has that jaw clench and my competent part would often feel a lot of tension in my back. You know, my muscles would tighten up. There were a lot of other body sensations that went with different parts. Parts have different beliefs, different thoughts, different intentions, different desires, different attitudes, different impulses, different ways of relating with other people. And so the way that my lover part would interact with people would be very different than the way my intimidator part or my guardian part would interact with other people. So you can see that a uniform homogenous idea of personality is never going to capture the complexity of what's going on, especially when so many of these parts are suppressed for so many people so much of the time. So I want to do an exercise to help you get in touch with a part of you because there's nothing quite like experiencing it within yourself. So I'm going to invite you into this exercise now. Now, if you're listening to this while you're driving or operating heavy machinery or working on the line at the factory or washing dishes or whatever, I'm going to ask you to really create a space for this. This is not something that you want to do sort of you know, halfway or with divided attention. If you're going to do this exercise, I'm going to invite you to do it for real, right? So that means quiet space, decrease the interruptions. It's only going to take about five minutes, maybe six. And so I'm really going to ask you to carve out the time for this. Don't listen to it until you have that space. So hit that stop button, hit that pause button until you can get into the space where you, you can do this justice. So, we ready? 
All right, here we go. I'm going to invite you to bring to mind a thought pattern or an attitude or an emotion that seems like it gets in your way. It's, it annoys you in some way. It bothers you in some way. It's the kind of, that's the kind of thought or emotion or attitude that you wish you didn't have to deal with. It's just inconvenient. You wish it didn't take over at certain times. You know, it might be the kind of thing that interferes with your prayer or that comes up when you're quiet. It doesn't have to be a major thing. Just something that you find irritating or unappealing. Something that you wish just wouldn't happen within you. All right, so, so let's really take a little time here and just help you get in touch with that thought or that emotion or that attitude that seems to take over. Just going to invite you to notice that. However you're experiencing that, focus on that thought or emotion or attitude. See if you can find it in your body or around your body. Some kind of body sensation that goes with that. See if it's connected to a particular place in your body. See if you can find it in or around your body. And this isn't mandatory. You don't have to find it. But sometimes it's really helpful to have a body connection to it. So if we can be in this place of being quiet and just really notice that thought or that feeling, or that attitude. Just quietly pay attention to it. And now I'm going to ask you something that might seem a little strange. But I'm going to ask you how you feel toward that emotion or toward that thought or attitude, whatever that experience is that you're irritated by or that you're bothered by, how do you feel toward that experience? Since it bothers you, you know, you might not like it very much. You might resent it. You might condemn it. You might try to banish it. You might try to argue with it or reason with it. You may work hard to ignore it or maybe even bargain with it or given the situation that all may make sense but let's just see if the parts of you that typically react to that experience in that way through resentment or condemnation or banishing or arguing or reasoning or ignoring or whatever let's just see if they can give you some space let's just see if they would relax a little bit so that you could open up to that experience, to that emotion, to that thought, or that attitude a little bit more. So let's just see if we can get more curious about it. So let's see if we can approach this bothersome experience, this irritating experience with some curiosity, with some openness, with some receptivity. Maybe you can't get there and that's okay. You know, if you can't get to a curious place, okay. We're going to accept that too. But if you can be curious, if you can be more open to that experience, I'm going to invite you to do something else that's unusual. And that is to ask that experience if there's something it wants you to know. And 
Don't think of an answer. Don't make up an answer. It's not something to analyze. Just wait for an answer to come. What do you want me to know? And then another question, right? To ask this experience, this emotion, this thought, like what it's afraid would happen if it didn't keep bothering you this way? What is it afraid would happen if it didn't do this job inside you of bothering you, of irritating you? Like what is it afraid would happen if it gave that up? See if you can stay with that, connecting with this part of you that irritates you. Can you be there with that calm and that compassion and that connection, with the curiosity? Is there anything else this experience, this part of you wants you to know about how it feels or what it needs from you or what kind of relationship it would like to have with you as the self? And if you do learn that it's trying to protect you, can you be grateful to that part for its good intentions? And can you be open to the idea that it's been trying to help you in some way? And so I'm just going to invite you to reflect for a little bit on what happened here. Could you sense the interior relationships? For some people, it's a lot easier than for others. Some people can see their parts. Other people can hear them. Other people sense them in an almost kinesthetic way. Others, you know, have much more difficulty initially kind of connecting with their parts. And that can be for a couple of reasons. People who are relatively well internally organized sometimes have more difficulty accessing parts because they are shifting among parts in a more seamless and integrated way, almost like a transmission that's working well. Whereas people that have more uh, internal fragmentation, the shifts are more abrupt and therefore more noticeable. Uh, alternatively, sometimes it can be hard to notice parts because there is one manager part that just drives the bus, kind of like my competent part who was in front most of the time and didn't really want other parts to be noticed. Sometimes that can happen too because that part's trying to protect against the intensity of other parts' experiences and has lots of fears that things would spin out of control. But I'm just inviting you in 
to an experience like that because that is kind of the essence of parts work. It's a little taste of what we do in parts work. That wasn't therapy. We don't do therapy on this podcast. We don't do therapy in the Resilient Catholics community. We don't do therapy in souls and hearts. But we can work with our parts in ways that help us to connect. So if you're interested in more resources, check out the website ifs-institute.com. That's got a lot of videos and resources about describing IFS from its officially sanctioned position, right? So that's going to have a kind of secular anthropology there. A good book on IFS is Introduction to the Internal Family Systems Model by Richard Swartz, published in 2001 by Trailheads Publications. That's really ordered to or designed for a lay reader, not a, not, you don't have to be a therapist to really grip onto that one. If you're interested in learning more about IFS through podcasts, since you happen to be listening to a podcast right now, The One Inside by Tammy Sullenberger. The One Inside is what the title of that is. It's an excellent podcast, comes out weekly. Uh, Tammy brings in a lot of different guests that are experts in all different kinds of IFS-related topics. Uh, I've talked with her on a couple of occasions. Lovely, lovely person. And so I would also recommend that for a lot more information about IFS. Next episode, we're going to get into looking at IFS through a Catholic lens from a Christian anthropology. You know, every practice of psychology and every program of human formation depends on theology, philosophy, epistemology, and metaphysics. These disciplines inform the underlying anthropology that supports the human formation program. And what do I mean by anthropology? I'm not talking about this in a secular sense. Anthropology, this is a definition according to Monsignor Charles Pope, anthropology is most simply the science or study of human beings through time and space. Different specialties focus on the analysis of biological and physiological characteristics in the examination of societies and cultures. In the religious sense, anthropology deals with the origin, nature, and destiny of human beings. That's not something that the science of psychology can give you. That's really much more the realm of philosophy, theology, metaphysics, and epistemology. And when I talk about human formation, which is what this podcast is about, which is what the Resilient Catholics community is about, which is what Souls and Hearts is about. I'm talking about the lifelong process of natural development aided by grace, by which a person integrates all aspects of his interior, emotional, cognitive, relational, and bodily life, all his natural faculties in an ordered way, conformed with right reason and natural law, so that he is freed from natural impediments to trust God as his beloved child and to embrace God's love. Then in return, because he possesses himself, he can love God, neighbor, and himself with all of his natural being in an ordered, intimate, personal, and mature way. So that's what I'm talking about when I'm talking about human formation. And I'm going to encourage you to do your own human formation work. Remember, the fall in the Garden of Eden was devastating to our bodies, also devastating to our human formation, devastating to our psyches, right? So I want you to really seriously examine your own human formation and to do your own human formation work, to build that solid natural foundation for grace to perfect. Don't leave that to chance. Serious Catholics have a spiritual plan of life. I argue that serious Catholics should also have a personal human formation plan of life to do the work, to do the development that needs to happen on the natural level. The Resilient Catholics community at Souls and Hearts, that grew up around this podcast. It's a place to do that human formation. It's open twice a year, once in the month of June, once in the month of December. So we're open as this podcast is released for the next couple of weeks until we get 80 new members or until the month ends. I'm really going to invite you to go to soulsandhearts.com backslash RCC. That's our landing page. 
check it out. There's a lot of details about how we do this human formation work. I don't know of any other program that's anything like it out there in the world right now. Again, no therapy, but this is a really comprehensive program to help you with your human formation. It can be an adjunct to therapy work that you're doing. It can also stand alone as long as you're doing relatively well. So the best of psychology, the best of human formation, all grounded in what we know to be true by divine revelation. For current members of the RCC, don't forget our second Wednesday Zoom meeting is on Wednesday, June 9th from 7.30 p.m. to 8.45 p.m. We're going to be discussing our companions and our companies within the relaunched Resilient Catholics community. We're going to get into what those relationships look like with our our companions, our daily connections with our companions and our weekly connections with our companies. Also, a reminder about conversation hours every Tuesday and Thursday in the month of June from 4.30 to 5.30 p.m. Eastern Time. Call me on my cell phone. I'll pick it up. 317-567-9594. We can talk about what's going on in the podcast. We can talk about IFS stuff. We can talk about previous podcasts. We can talk about the Resilient Catholics community. We can talk about anything that's relevant to souls and hearts and what we're doing in this podcast. I'd love to hear from you. You can also email me at crisisatsoulsandhearts.com. But you know what? I prefer to talk. I actually prefer to connect with my listeners. So call me, 317-567-9594, 4.30 to 5.30 p.m. Eastern Time, every Tuesday and Thursday. And with that, I want to thank you for being on this journey with me. We will wrap up with invoking our patroness and our patron, Our Lady, Our Mother, Untire of Knots. Pray for us. St. John the Baptist, pray for us.